Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned from it, it from a Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made it known to us your love in the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I have a question to start out the sermon with this morning. How many of you have heard of this new application called ChatGPT? Chat GPT, not that many actually, um, or you didn't want to raise your hand. Chat GPT, if you, well, if you haven't raised your hand, if you've never heard of that before, I think you need to start paying attention to what's going on in the world. Chat GPT is an artificial intelligence chatbot, meaning you can converse with it as if it was a human. You can ask questions of it, you can tell it to do things, like, write me an essay, write me a poem, write me a story, write me a song. Write me a song, a country song, that doesn't include women, whiskey, my pickup truck, or my dog, and it's going to do that for you. This, this technology is a disruptive technology. It's a game changer. It's changing everything right now. Just look at all the money on Wall Street that they're just scrambling, trying to figure out how to get a piece of this action. You actually can't invest in OpenAI, which is the creator of ChatGPT, but they're, they're trying to figure out how to make money on this. Uh, it's gonna change the world. Uh, one of my children says that it can solve and do every assignment in an undergraduate computer science degree. All of that, it can do it. Don't need, to, don't need to learn it yourself because it can do it for you. Imagine this, your children that are growing up now, they're not gonna have to write an essay about To Kill a Mockingbird or The Great Gatsby. They're just gonna ask ChatGPT to write me a 500-word essay on this. And guess what? The teachers are now gonna have to employ artificial intelligence so that they can check whether what they're getting is coming from a human or from a machine. Well, it's scary, scary technology. I was reading an article last night. Um, it was talking about Elon Musk and his thoughts about artificial intelligence. He says that this is actually more dangerous than nuclear weapons. It's more dangerous than nuclear weapons. We're gonna reach a point very quickly where human beings are gonna lose the ability to understand, to predict, and to control what artificial intelligence is going to do. And if you're like me, you're thinking back to some of those movies you watched as a kid, right? The Terminator and The Matrix and all this other stuff where computers 
take control. Well, as we start our study in the book of Colossians, we're going to look at the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel, and the power of the gospel is disruptive. I would argue it's the greatest game changer that has ever hit planet Earth because God became a man. God became a man. The gospel is the great game changer. It has turned the world upside down. And as we look at unpacking our passage this morning in Colossians, we're gonna look at three aspects of this gospel. We're gonna look at the fact that the gospel is grace and truth, that that gospel produces and it bears fruit. That fruit is faith, love, and hope. And then thirdly, we're going to look at how the gospel is advancing across the planet. Well, since we're starting a new series in Colossians, I want to just spend a little bit of time giving you some background information about this book. In verse 1, it says right away that Paul is identified as the author. Paul is the author. And in chapter 4, if we did a little reading ahead, we'll learn some things about where he was he mentions a fellow prisoner, Aristarchus. He mentions his chains. So Paul is writing from prison. Now, scholars debate whether this is Rome or Ephesus. We're not going to dive into that, uh, but surely he is in prison. Also, in that verse, he identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, meaning God is the one that chose him to be an apostle. And the Greek word there, apostolos, means a sent one or a messenger. It could be used in a general sense. But here, because he is an apostle of Christ Jesus, he is using an official title. He is a sent one of his Lord. And if you want to know where that is captured, you can go back to Acts chapter 9 and see his conversion, where he encounters Jesus himself, where he gets his commission from the Lord. This is important because as we, as we unpack uh, Colossians in this series, we're going to see that apostolic authority is important because he's confronting false teaching. We see in verse 2 that he's writing to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. He's writing to the church at Colossae. Colossae is in an area that is in modern-day western Turkey. Okay? It's about 100 miles east of Ephesus. It's in a, in a region called the Lycus River Valley. Yes, there is a river there. And Colossae used to be a booming town because of something that they had there. They had an industry around uh, fabrics, cloths. Uh, they fabricated uh, dyed wool, and the color of that wool was a color purple, a type of purple. And the name for that was Colossinus, from which they got the name Colossae. Now, the church in Colossae uh, likely came into being through the ministry of Paul, even though Paul actually never got to Colossae. He was in Ephesus for two years, and this account is covered in Acts chapter 19. And it, and it says there, when he was in Ephesus, the gospel spread to the entire region. And so it's likely that what happened is this person, Epaphras, uh, that's mentioned in our verses this morning, that he received the gospel and he took it back to his hometown. And why do I say that? Well, in verse 7, it says, just as you learned it, the gospel, from Epaphras. 
And then in chapter four, we learn that Epaphras is one of them. Paul says he is one of you. He is a Colossian. So we think that the Colossian church was founded by Epaphras. That's how the gospel got there. I made mention to you what the main purpose of this book that we're going to unpack over about 10 to 12 weeks. Uh, It's about confronting false teaching. False teaching had crept into the church, and Paul uh, felt like he had to write a letter to address that false teaching. Now, we don't know the exact nature of that false teaching, but as we look at the the teaching that Paul gives, you're going to get some clues as to what that false teaching may have been. It, it has elements of Judaism, it has elements of the pagan religion, and it takes that and it tries to combine it to what is done in Christ. And that's exactly what's at stake in the book of Colossians. What's at stake is the gospel of Jesus Christ and whether we can add things to it. That's what's going on here. So let's look at that first point, the grace and truth of the gospel. The gospel is the good news. The Greek word there, euangelion, means good news or good tidings. And in that time, it wasn't actually a particularly religious term. It was actually a political term. Right? It was used most often to announce the coming of a king or a kingdom. And the most famous example of that is an inscription found on a government building in ancient Ionia, and it's known as the Preen Inscription, and it says this concerning Caesar Augustus. The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the gospel, the euangelion that came throughout, through him to the world. And so when Paul, in fact, all the New Testament writers are using euangelion, when they're using gospel, they're co-opting a word that was used politically, and they're saying, we're bringing you good news of a better king and a better kingdom that is coming. Well, the gospel is the truth. The gospel is grace. We see that in verse 5 where it says the gospel is the word of truth. What is truth? Now, we live in an age where truth has become relative. Truth is, truth is what you make of it. Truth is what you define it. My reality is how I define it, and you can't argue with that. I'm creating my own truth. We're living in an age where evil is called good, good is called evil, where facts are simply ignored. And the gospel is the truth not only because it is true, but because without it, men cannot see and apprehend what is really true. You may remember the story of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. When he goes to Jesus at night, Jesus says to him this, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying that there has to be a supernatural work done to you through the gospel for your eyes to be open to what is true. The Holy Spirit has to come to bear on your life. Without this, there's no knowledge of the truth. In in Romans chapter one, this is how Paul says it, that men suppress the truth. They suppress the knowledge of God. 
What we see today is the suppression of the knowledge of God. God has revealed himself to every man on planet Earth through his creation. You can see his invisible attributes just by looking at creation. So men are without excuse. Men are suppressing the truth. Why is that? Because that's the natural bent of all of our hearts if God did not reach down and change our hearts. I like what Augustine says. He says, seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. What is he saying there? He's saying, don't go about trying to get all of this knowledge and information so that you can believe. Actually, you're going to know the real truth. You're going to know what is real if you come to faith in Christ. And so faith in Christ as he is offered in the gospel is the key to truth. It is the key to truth And there is no other key to truth and understanding besides Jesus in the gospel. And what we have here in this opening paragraph in Colossians, Paul is reminding them that the gospel, the good news about Jesus, it is the truth. And why is he reminding them that? Well, he's going to, we're going to see, he's setting up to confront what is not true. He's going to confront false teaching Well, the gospel is truth. It is also the grace of God. We see this in verse six, the grace of God in truth. So it's not only the truth about God and the truth about us, and yes, that our relationship with God and each other has been severed by our sin, but it reveals the grace of God. It reveals the only solution, the only fix for our sin, and that is Jesus Jesus is the announcement of the good news. In John 1.14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's talking about Jesus. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the one who embodies the grace and the truth. He is true because he is God Almighty. In him there is light. There is no darkness at all. And he shows forth the grace of God that God would set his love upon us and he would take the initiative to restore the broken relationship. In Romans 5, 8, Paul says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were stuck in our sin, while we were enemies of God, while we didn't want to have anything to do with him, We were in a position where we could not help ourselves. And what we see here is God's love on full display. He's showing grace in his son. Well, by now, most of you know that I am a hunter. I didn't start out that way. I actually uh, grew up fishing. Uh, But I got into hunting later in life. And I'll never forget the day when I took my very first animal It was a cool fall morning, and I was hopeful. And uh, I was wandering out in the field, and there goes this giant hog. Well, I took him. It was a couple hundred plus pounds. And I wandered over to this pig, took a lot of pictures, was so excited, and then reality started to hit me. What am I going to do with this thing? (laughs) <laughs> what am I going to do? I've, you know, I, I, I looked at a few YouTube videos and things like that, read a few magazines. 
Well, I started to try to move this thing, and I couldn't even move the hog. It was so big. I, I mean, just maybe a couple inches. And I was a couple miles into the woods. Uh, this was a place where you, you can't take any vehicles. You can ride your bike or you can walk. So I was a couple miles deep in the woods, and I have a couple hundred pound hog just sitting there. I can't move it. I don't know what to do. And so I'm thinking, what am I going to do? I'm really stuck. And I'll never forget what happened. This fellow hunter comes along, and he sees what's going on, and he wanders up. He's so, totally excited for me. And uh, he finds out, yeah, I, I don't have any way to get this back. I can't lift it. I can't do anything. We move it over to a place. We clean it up. He helps me actually attach it to my bicycle. I have a great picture of this. I wanted to show it to you, but I couldn't find it. This is a, there's, a, there's a pig holding the handlebars of my bicycle strapped to it. And I, wa I walked it a couple miles all the way out. This, this, uh, this fellow hunter, he helped me load it up into my truck. He went and, he went and got ice. He said, I'm going to meet you back at your house. He spent the rest of the day with me, showing me how to process the game. And uh, I tried to compensate him for his time, for, his, for the ice. Um, he wouldn't take any of that. You know, and I think back to it. It was at great cost uh, that he did what he did. This is, a, this is an illustration of grace, right? Um, for those of us who work, you don't get many days to go out in the field and hunt. He gave up his entire hunt that day. He never made it out to the field. He made it to me, and then he turned around, and he gave his whole day to spend with me, his time, his money, his, his, his capabilities. That's grace. We were stuck in sin. We had no way out. We needed help. And Jesus came, and he brings himself as the solution to our sin. Paul's setting the foundation here that the gospel is grace. This is important also. The gospel is truth. The gospel is grace. Why? Because you're going to see that false teaching is not grace at all. False teaching tries to add to the work of Jesus. So Paul, right in the beginning, he's establishing the fact the gospel is truth. The gospel is grace. Secondly, we're going to see that the gospel, it produces fruit, faith, love, and hope. Now, these are the, the essence uh, of the Christian life. These are the marks of the Christian life. Many theologians have, have said this is, you know, if you're to define a Christian, it's these three essential things. And you can imagine it like a three-legged stool. You can't pull any one of those uh, legs out and it still be an operating stool. And in a similar way, a Christian is marked by faith hope and love. You can't remove a single one of those and say it's a Christian. Uh, this morning, I'm, I'm probably just going to only unpack one of those. Uh, let me unpack for you faith. Everyone has faith in something. There's a statistic out there that I saw that 85% of the people on planet Earth believe in some religion. 85%, that's an astounding number, actually. Those 15% who don't believe in a spiritual something, they are also making a faith assertion. They are making a belief assertion. They're saying, I don't believe that there is a God. That in itself is a faith assertion. They believe in something. And I think the reformers have really helped us to understand how to view faith, how to view biblical faith. In Latin, they, they break it down into these three components. Notitia, assensus, and fiducia. Knowledge, 
assent, and trust, okay? Faith is composed of those three uh, elements. So if we look at knowledge, it's information, right? It's information. You have to, what do we have faith in? Well, there's some kind of knowledge or information. And for the Christian, that is knowledge or information about who Jesus is and what he has done, what work he has done. And I want you to think about this. There's a lot of people on this planet who have that information, who have that knowledge. They know about Jesus. That's not faith. The second thing is a census or assent to that faith. That means there's a conviction that that information is true. Okay, so it's, it's taking it another step. Not only do we have information, but we are validating it is true. But the reformers didn't stop there. They went one step further with fiducia. They said that is useless unless there is a personal trust, a personal reliance. You're going to set all of your hope upon this person. Because you see, intellectual knowledge, even a conviction that something is true, is not enough. In James chapter 2, verse 19, James says this, even the demons believe. You ever think about that? The demons, they have that information. They know who the Son of God is. They know who Jesus is. They even have the conviction that, yes, he is the Son of God. He has come on a mission to save humanity. But they don't have fiducia. They don't have trust. They are not staking their hope upon Christ. It's like the person that's in the pool or in the ocean drowning and someone throws them a life preserver Yes, they can have knowledge that that's some kind of flotation device and it's sitting on top of the water. It's made out of styrofoam. That's knowledge. Conviction that it's true. Yeah, I also believe that it can save me. That's good. But unless that person reaches out and puts their whole trust in that life preserver, they don't have what we call biblical faith. That's biblical faith. We don't have time this morning to look at hope and love, so I'm going to move on from the fruit of the gospel being faith, love, and hope, and we're going to look at how the, adv- the gospel advances. And I want, to, I want to just give you one point about this, that the gospel advances through a better commission and a better mandate. In verse 6, it says, The gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and it is increasing. And theologians have seen this verse over the years, and they have believed that this is an an allusion to the Old Testament creation mandate. And if you don't know what that is, let me read to you in Genesis 128, and I'll explain this. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the creation mandate, still in effect. God wants us to fill the earth. God wants us to multiply. God wants us to have dominion over it. And we see here in verse 6 that the gospel is bearing fruit. The gospel is increasing, and it's increasing through a better mandate, a better commission. And you may know it as the great commission that Jesus gave his disciples in Matthew 28, where he said, go into all the nations making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, the gospel is spreading across the world not by physical reproduction and physical dominion and rule. The gospel is spreading across the world through spiritual multiplication. 
and reproduction and is spreading through spiritual dominion and rule. That's what we see that's been going on for the last 2,000 years. You think about it. The gospel started right there in that Mediterranean area in a little small localized area, and today we see it all around the planet. The gospel is advancing. In 1800, there were about 200 million Christians on planet Earth. Today, there are over 2 billion Christians on planet Earth. The gospel is advancing. And the gospel is the greatest power on earth because it reveals God's grace, God's truth. It produces fruit of faith, hope, and love, and it advances through the Great Commission. And this morning, and as we go through this series, we're going to be wrestling with this essential truth of the gospel. And it boils down to this this morning. Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus that this good news is about? Is he the son of God who gave himself so that I can be restored in my relationship with God? Or is he just simply a sham? Is he the God that is supreme over everything, over all creation? He's the one that holds everything together. Is he the God that is sufficient for everything, including salvation, but also for the deepest needs that I've come to church with this morning, like the need for significance, meaning, comfort, security, joy, and peace? Well, as we unpack this wonderful book, we're gonna see that Jesus, yes, he is supreme. He is sufficient for all of our deepest needs. Would you pray with me? Mighty God, our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that there is such a thing as good news for planet Earth. And we see in this good news the great, unmeasurable, unfailing love of God poured out upon this world. We see it in your dear Son. We thank you when we look upon Jesus, we don't see a taskmaster we don't see someone who's counting up our sins. We see grace. We see tr truth. And we thank you for him, Lord. We ask, Lord, that you would be with us now as we move towards the sacrament. We may proclaim this great news this morning. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.